Acts chapter 25, if you, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please grab one from under a seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you after the service, make that yours. Acts 25, as we continue to study through the, the life and ministry of Paul, and we've been mentioning over the last couple of times together, Paul is now in Caesarea. He is under arrest by the Romans because of the things that had transpired in Jerusalem, the the, the Jewish religious leaders there bringing the false charges and accusations against Paul. And we've been, looked last time as to when Paul had, had a, a, a face-to-face opportunity to share with the governor at the time, his name, is, his name is Felix, a man who, very ungodly, we talked of that, a very cruel ruler. And at the end of our discussion last time, We noted that it told us that Paul now would remain in Caesarea for two years. And at the end of that two-year period, Felix has now been replaced by another governor. Finally had enough of, of, of Felix. He's been recalled, replaced now by a man named Porcius Festus, who history is kind to as far as a ruler. He was uh, overall a, a pretty good guy. But we're going to see um, now this uh, exchange between them now as he becomes the, the, the governor in the area, Jerusalem being the main, the main city in his area that he is governing. So as we see right away, one of the first things he does is go to Jerusalem and meet with the religious leaders there. So follow along with me, beginning chapter 25, verse 1. Festus then, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, brought back to Jerusalem, and at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Now that, just reading that just right away, causes me to chuckle a little bit, I don't know about you, but if you'll remember back in chapter 23, verse 12, there was a group of men who made a vow that they weren't going to eat or drink anything until they killed Paul. They must be getting awful hungry about now because we're two years later and we're still trying to figure out how we're going to ambush and kill him. But anyway, verse 4, Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. After he had spent no more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Here again, we see as this has just been happening over and over to Paul, it seems like they, these, they just won't let up. They won't give him a break. They won't give him a rest. They keep coming after him. And notice again, it says they're bringing these false charges against him. There's no truth to anything that they're saying. Their entire goal is just to undermine him and his ministry. And I don't know where you are in your, in your Christian walk, if you face those types of things, if you feel the enemy continually coming against you, and even specifically in areas like this, where people are coming against you, attacking your character, saying things about you, saying false things about you. In our flesh, we have a tendency to fight and push back with that. But listen to what Jesus says. He says, blessed are you, When people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you because of me, 
rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The truth of the matter is, guys, the Bible tells us is very clear. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. If that is your desire and that is your prayer, that you are praying, God, I want to live all out for you. I want to be your servant. Use me as you see fit. Knowing as God does that and answers that prayer, you will face persecution. And that comes in many different forms comes in the, the form of that. The enemy will make sure that you have a pretty steady flow of people in your life who will be saying evil against you, who will be trying to undermine you, even some that you think are, are close to you. And again, our tendency is to push back on that and, and say, God, why? Instead of, as Jesus said, rejoice in that. Make sure it is because, make sure it is because you're following the Lord and you're serving him and it's all because of him. But in that, no, that there is a blessing waiting you in that. Well, Paul, it says, said in his own defense, verse eight, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, he wants to start off on the right foot with them, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. We see here in Paul, in his response to this, he is, he is saying, I'm not afraid to die. That's not, that's not the issue for Paul. Paul says in, in, his, in his letter to the Philippian church, he, he's torn. He wants to go be with his Savior. He says, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul's not afraid to die. He's just not in a hurry to go about the process. He's, he is not, he's not rushing into it because he realizes that he's still here for a purpose, God still has work for him to do. He's not afraid to go home. He can't wait to get home. But he wants to fulfill everything that God has called him to do before he goes. One commentator put it this way. Paul was not afraid of the lions. He wasn't just in a hurry to put his head in their mouth if he could avoid it. So he appeals here. Notice he says, I appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, Paul had every right to do that. He, this, this, these accusations get brought against him, he has the right as a citizen to take it all the way to the top, to Caesar. By the way, Caesar at this time, man named Nero. And if you know anything about church history, you know anything about history, Nero became a, a raving lunatic. He actually set Rome on fire and then blamed the Christians and then persecuted them mercilessly. But at this point, early on in his reign, he was actually known as a wise and just ruler for the first few years of his reign, surrounding himself with other wise men. Paul, at this point, appeals to Caesar. I, again, get a little chuckle of verse 12, where it says, Then Festus conferred with his council and answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Like he's in charge of that. Like he's the one who really ultimately calls the shots. Remember back in chapter, again, chapter 23, verse 11, when Paul was in prison and Jesus said to him, he appeared to him there and said, well done, you're doing, you're doing well, but you're gonna do this in Rome. 
Who's behind Paul getting to Rome? It's not Festus. <laughs> Jesus has a plan for Paul. The, that plan is to get him to Rome. He's just using Festus in the process. To Caesar you shall go. Well, verse 13 says, Now when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. King Agrippa, this is King Agrippa II. He is an expert in Jewish custom, Jewish religion, as a Jew himself. He, he no doubt comes here knowing, because he's part of this region as well, but now the governor, Festus, come to, to pay his respects, to get to know him perhaps on a little better level. And Festus is now going to take advantage of that as we look at the next several verses as, as to reach into that. But a little bit more history on Agrippa II, the family tree, the lineage that he comes from. No doubt you know the name Herod. His father, Herod Agrippa I, was actually responsible for having James, the brother of John, one of the 12 disciples, the first disciple to be martyred. He was the one who ordered his execution. And when he saw how that pleased the religious leaders, he then had Peter arrested. That's, that's this Agrippa's dad. His great uncle was Herod Antipas. He was the one who was responsible for having John the Baptist beheaded. He was also the one who... who Pilate sent Jesus to, and after he talked with him a bit, sent him back to Pilate. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great, the one who set out to destroy Jesus as a baby. He was the one who ordered the, the slaughter of all of the innocents, the babies, to try to make sure that the Messiah did not come. That's, that's the family tree this guy comes from. We see now as he comes the, the exchange that takes place, and we'll read now through kind of pretty much the end of the chapter, just follow along as Festus now replays everything that's been going on to Agrippa while they were spending many days together. Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I sent him to Caesar. Then Agrippa sent to, said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amidst, amidst great pomp and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I have found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, 
And since he himself appeared to, appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite to write about him to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me to send a prisoner, not indicating also the charges against him. So here's the picture. Herod, Agrippa, Bernice, they're here. And now in the auditorium, which if you've ever been to Jerusalem or, you're go, or to Israel or you're going on the trip here in a few weeks, this is the, one of the first stops we make. We actually stand in the auditorium where this is going to take place. And this is this big event. It says with great pomp, you know, this, this great extravagance that is now put out. This isn't a trial. The, the Jews are not present. But Festus invites all of the prominent men of the city. So there's a great gathering. And now Paul is going to stand in front of them and again make his defense. And Lord willing, we're going to look at that as we get into chapter 26 next week. Paul's defense before Festus and before Agrippa. But for the remainder of our time today, I want to go back and, and look at something that, again, at first glance, at first reading, we might just pass over, but it's hugely significant. Look back with me at verse 19. Actually, we could look, we'll look at 18, kind of leading into it. Again, Festus trying to explain now to Agrippa what this is all about. What is all going on? And first of all, let's take a look at, at Festus's ignorance in what he's saying. He says, when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus. About a dead man, Jesus. His ignorance. You see, the, the fact of the matter is, Festus, this is only a few decades after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But this man, Festus, doesn't know a whole lot about Jesus. We don't know where he was at the time all of this was going on in Galilee and in Jerusalem, but probably at some other part, maybe even in Rome itself. Did not know of this, had probably heard of this man, but really nothing else. He doesn't know. The majority of the people in Paul's day did not know all of the truth about Jesus. They had to be told. And you see, the same is true today. The world has a whole bunch of ideas about who Jesus was, a historical figure, a great man, a wise man, a generous man, a dead man. But if they're not told the truth, they're just like Festus. As a matter of fact, Spur Charles Spurgeon says, said this, speaking of this, he says, brethren, this is why we must keep on preaching Jesus Christ, because he is still so little known. The masses of this city are as ignorant of Jesus as Festus was. We can't assume that because we live in America in the time that we live in, that our neighbors know who Jesus is. But in addition to the ignorance of Festus, look at his insight, because this, is, this jumped off the page at me on Friday as I was reading this. He said, they simply had some point of disagreement with him about their own religion, about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. All of the accusations that have been brought against Paul, 
And we've discussed this at length. It just seems every city he went to, they were always trying to find something, stirring up a riot, stirring up everything. Festus has the insight, guys, it all boils down to this. The Jews say he's dead, Paul says he's alive. It all boils down to that. It's, it's this basic disagreement that they have. And guys, don't, don't miss this. That is the issue. That is the issue. Still today, everything that comes against us as Christians and what we stand for can be boiled down to that. We claim that Jesus is alive. We claim that our Lord is alive, that he lives. The implications of that, what that means to those who don't believe, that is why they push so hard against it. That is why they fight so hard against it. I, I find it interesting that Festus then says, I'm at a loss how to investigate this. Really? You're at a loss how to investigate it just a couple of decades after the fact? Here's how you investigate it, prove it wrong, find the body. That's all you have to do. That's all anybody would have had to have done and it would have stopped this whole Christianity thing in its infancy, provide the body. The problem is, there is no body to find. It's in heaven. He's ascended to heaven. He's alive. That's the truth. That's, that's the reality of this. I want to spend the time that we have left this morning looking at what that means for us as believers. There are certain things that we need to appropriate as believers because of this truth. So if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I encourage you this week to spend some time just reading through the entire chapter. It's 58 verses long. We won't cover all of them this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Beginning in verse one, Paul says this, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James and to the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. First of all, before we look, at, look into that much deeper, the, he says, I'm at a loss how to investigate this. This, was, this letter, 1 Corinthians, was written just a couple of years before this event that we're looking at in Acts. At the time of its writing, most of the 500 people who had witnessed Jesus personally resurrected were still alive. All of the disciples, save just a couple, James, who we mentioned was, had, had been killed, most of them were still alive. The, the truth of the matter, the, the, the Bible critics, 
One of their big arguments years ago, decades ago, was that the Bible is just a fraud. It's a forgery. It was written centuries after the fact. But that, that argument doesn't hold up anymore. There has been so much evidence, including transcript evidence, manuscript evidence, to date the letters and the gospels to within a couple of decades of when Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Within 20 or 30 years. If that's the case, and those were written, there has not been one ever found that debunked that, that said, that's crazy. All of this stuff that's being spread around about this Jesus guy, he's dead, his tomb's right over there, it's, his body's right over there. Not one. Every one of the disciples and followers of Jesus went to their death, most of them gruesome deaths, proclaiming Jesus as the risen Lord. Not one of them recanted. Not one of them said, we made the whole thing up. I'm at a loss as to how to investigate. <laughs> the proof is everywhere. But Paul goes on now in 1 Corinthians 15. The importance of this, look at verse 16. He's talking, again, verses leading up to this about if, if there is no resurrection, if Jesus has not risen, Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Jesus is still in the grave, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're still in our sins. Jesus had to, be, had to rise from the dead in order to prove that his sacrifice on the cross for us was accepted by the Father. And Paul says, we're still in our sins. If, if, he, if he hasn't risen, we, among all men in the world, are most to be pitied. Verse 20, but, but, now Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the fact, guys, and because of that, we shouldn't be pitied. We, amongst all people of the world, should be envied. Because we have what the rest of the world doesn't have and can't have apart from faith in Jesus. And I want to spend a few minutes this morning showing what the Bible tells us as believers. We can appropriate. We can know for absolutely certain because of the resurrection. Because he lives. First of all, we can have the assurance that we serve a living Lord. Our King, our God is alive. Now you might say, well, okay, so what? Well, here's what. <laughs> he lives to make intercession for us. He compassionately understands everything that we go through. He knows the hurt you're feeling. He knows the distress that you might be having. He knows the trials. He knows the tribulations. The Bible tells us he went through all of that just as we did, yet without sin, so that he could relate to us. And the Bible tells us, Revelation chapter two, beginning in verse eight, the first and the last, that's Jesus, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Jesus said, I was dead, but I am alive. I know your tribulation. And that word know is that Greek word that carries with it experiential knowledge. 
It's not just I've been made aware of it. I know it. I felt it. I have empathy towards you. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know that because Jesus stepped out of the riches and glory in heaven to take on our form, to live as we live, experiencing that poverty. But he says, but you're rich. You're rich because he's there now. And he knows what awaits us. He actively intercedes. He lives to make intercession for us. Not only do we have the assurance that we serve a living Lord, we have the assurance he is who he says he is. He said he is the son of God, and we have assurance that he is the son of God because he rose from the dead. Paul writes, Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. We know he is who he says he is, the son of God, because he rose from the dead. The religious leaders, the skeptics at the time of Jesus, is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 12. They came to him and they said, give us a sign. We want a sign. And Jesus said, you wicked generation, always asking for a sign. There won't be a sign given to you except the sign of Jonah, who spent three days three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Three days, three nights, but then rise again. That's the sign you'll get. Call in his shot, if you would. (laughs) The Son of God proven. By the way, if anybody ever questions you about stories in the Bible, do you really believe that Jonah story? Three days, three nights in the belly of a whale? You bet I do. Number one, because it's right here. I believe every word that's in here. This is the word of God that comes to us. This isn't a book of fairy tales. This is a book of truth. It tells us the story of Jonah. Number two, because Jesus believed it, and that's good enough for me. The resurrection did not make him the son of God. The resurrection proved that he is the son of God. It validated the fact. So what? Well, here's what. The Son of God said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way. He can make that claim. He can make that statement because he is who he says he is, and the resurrection proves he is who he says he is. And we can have that assurance as believers. Thirdly, we can have the assurance of his power because of the resurrection. Absolute, total power. Guys, what death did to Jesus is nothing compared to what Jesus did to death. He destroyed it. We have eternal, everlasting life in him, again, because of the resurrection. All of the weight of our sin was placed on him. Isaiah 53, the weight, the sin of the world placed on him. It tells us that it pleased God to crush him because of our transgression. All the power of hell 
wanted to make sure that Jesus stayed in that grave because again, if he stays in the tomb, our faith is worthless. We're still in our sins. But bursting forth on glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. There's no chance, no chance. By the way, the stone as it was blown to smithereens, I can't wait to watch that on video in heaven. I want, I did that, the live scene. Hollywood can't do anything to try to, to replay that. But the tomb wasn't opened to let Jesus out. The tomb was opened up to allow man in to see he's not there. So what? Well, here's the amazing thing, guys. That same power is in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and me as believers. Amen. Paul writes to Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter one, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power, notice, toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. That same power available to us, in us, are you feeling powerless in the current situation that you're in? Get plugged in. Get plugged back into the power source. It's there. Are you feeling lost? Are you feeling disconnected? Jesus is saying, just come back. Just come back to me. Spend some time at my feet. Hear from me. Just breathe. I love that song. That's awesome. Fourthly, we have the assurance, guys, here, we have the assurance, the absolute certainty that our sins are forgiven. Absolutely, completely, totally, because he rose from the dead. He said on the cross, it is finished. To tell us, I paid in full. I did everything that I came here to accomplish. But again, if Jesus died only, as Paul tells us, we're still in our sins. If he doesn't rise from the dead, he's just like every other Jewish man who's been crucified. He's dead. But what separates him again, he died for us. And his resurrection proves that the sacrifice on our behalf was accepted by the Father. Because of that, we have a living hope. Not hope like the Atlanta Falcons fans have, <laughs> or the New England Patriots fans, just to be fair. But absolute assurance, that's what biblical hope is. Absolute assurance of what waits us. That's why when the world mourns the death of a loved one, we mourn differently because we have living hope. We know that we will be reunited with our loved ones. They don't have that. 
Peter writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, note, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because he lives, we have this hope, and that hope is an anchor for our souls. We don't mourn like the rest of the world who doesn't have hope. We have the assurance of our salvation. We have the assurance that the broken relationship with our creator has been reconciled. We have the assurance of our justification. Justification, being declared righteous. Not in our own righteousness, his, as we pointed out, but declared righteous. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Romans 4, he was delivered over because of our transgressions and raised because of our justification. Fifthly, we have the assurance of our own personal, bodily, eternal resurrection. Notice back in 1 Corinthians 15, I referred, we started, we looked at the beginning of verse 20, but it continues. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Notice the first fruits of those who are asleep. First fruits. He's the first. For since by man came death through Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead through Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Guys, that's you and me. At his coming. We will have eternal, physical, glorified bodies. Death, physical death, separates the body from the soul. The body goes to the grave. The soul goes to be with Jesus. It tells us, absent from the body, present with the Lord immediately. But there is a day coming when we will be reunited with our bodies, our physical bodies. Glorified, perfect. Look ahead, jump ahead to verse 50. Again, I encourage you to read the entire chapter, but verse 50, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable, but I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then we will have come about it to saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But, verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory over death is ours in Christ because he lives, because he rose from the dead. We will be, again, reunited with our bodies. We will have an eternity in that. Paul again writes, real quickly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
saying the same thing, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I hope those words are a comfort to you, that we will have eternal glorified bodies one day. What does it look like? I, I don't know. I don't have all of the answers. We have some hints. We, we do have some idea. It will be physical bodies. We know that we will be like Jesus because we will see him as he is, as 1 John tells us. We're going to be like him. In that, we're going to have those same bodies. He said, we know it's a physical body. He said, touch me after he risen. Touch, does, does spirit, he said, have flesh and bone? So we know that there'll be, there'll be physical bodies. Jesus ate with his disciples. We're not going to have to eat, but we're going to get to eat. Are we, I mean, so, so what, are, what are we all going to look like? Are we going to have that? I, I know that there will be something about us that we're going to be able to recognize one another. They were able to recognize Jesus. They, they saw him. They knew who he was. So there will be some aspect about that. But make no mistake, our bodies will be perfect. No more pain. No more suffering, no more disease, no more allergies. Are we all going to be the same height? I don't know. I kind of hope so. <laughs> I can say, reach that for yourself. Hey. Are we all going to have hair? I don't think so. I don't. Because here, let me let you in on a little something. God only created a, f a few perfect heads. The rest he covered with hair. So, <laughs> we are, though, we're going to have supernatural, otherworldly powers. I mean, Jesus was able to go through walls. He was able to disappear and, and show up in other places. He was, I mean, all of those types of things. Again, how does it all work? I don't know, but... To be able to move, not at the speed of light, but at the speed of thought. Which will come in handy because the new Jerusalem is 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles deep, and 1,500 miles tall. If you get an elevator at the bottom floor, travel 100 miles an hour, 15 hours to get to the penthouse. So to be able to say, I want to, you know, that'll come in handy. Now that's, again, this great glorious assurance that we have as believers. And you might say, sitting there maybe as a skeptic, so what? Well, here's what. You see, the bodily resurrection isn't just for believers. The Bible tells us very clearly that the resurrection is a certainty both for the righteous and the wicked. Jesus said that there will be a resurrection, a bodily resurrection, some to glory, others to judgment. Lastly, because Jesus lives, we know that there is the assurance of a day of judgment that is coming. Acts 17, we looked at this several weeks ago. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men, all men, that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in, notice, righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. A day is coming when 
The world will be judged, everyone, according to righteousness. Not, not the world's definition of righteousness, but God's. Absolute, perfect. Now, there's, there's great news and really bad news. Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, the choice is yours. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, you've never trusted in him and him alone for your salvation, you've been relying at least even partly on your own goodness or you somehow producing your own righteousness. You have a choice. We all are given a choice. Jesus died for the sins of all. The penalty was paid in full and received by the Father, but you have to receive it yourself. Just like a presidential pardon, who we've read a lot about in the last few weeks. A presidential pardon does no good to the one being pardoned if they refuse to accept it. The same is true with the pardon for your sin. It's available to you, but you have to receive it. And if you've never taken that step, you will face judgment one day on your own. And you will have to stand in your own righteousness. And you will have to stand before a holy, righteous, perfect, and just God for every thought, every action, every word, every intent, every motive for your entire life. Or you can stand in his righteousness. He paid your debt. It's paid in full, but you have to receive it. And when you do, he takes your sin and gives you his righteousness. If you place your trust and your faith and, and your hope in him today, you can have that living hope. You can have the assurance of all of the things that we've been talking about today. But you have to make that step. You have to make that decision and give your heart to Jesus. I wanna lead you in a prayer here in just a moment. But for the rest of us, what's our response to this? Now what? <laughs> well, we need, to, we need to rejoice in these truths. I, I, I pray that you, you go through back through these things in your mind. If you took some notes, maybe go back through these things. All of the things that we can appropriate and we can know for absolute certainty because our king lives. It's ours. Verse 58, it closes out in 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, therefore, because of this, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Stand firm, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Always be ready to give a defense. Always be ready to share the hope that you have, these assurances that we have. Always be about his business. Guys, he's coming soon. We don't know how much time we have left, but let's redeem every moment. And also, I don't know about you, but I think, I think all of this is worth singing about. <laughs> Spending a little time praising the Lord, and I know our worship team has a few, few songs to lead us in in that. So would you stand? Let's worship the Lord together here with a couple of songs closing out, but let's pray. Father, thank you.
we thank you for the truth of your word and you are not silent in your word about all that is ours because Jesus is alive. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the, the fact that it was by your own choice you chose to step out of heaven and to become one of us. You chose to go through and experience all the things that, that we experience. And you chose to lay down your life for ours. You chose to shed your perfect, holy blood for us, to wash us of our sins. And Lord, we thank you for that. And we worship you here today for all of the things that we know are ours. We know that you live to make intercession for us. We know that you understand right where we are. You never push us away, but you invite us even closer. We know that you are the Son of God in power, and you extend that power to us. We know that our sins are forgiven, and we know that we will be with you forever in our glorified, perfect bodies. Lord, we can't wait for that day, but until that day, we want to live all out for you. Fill us with your spirit. If you're here today and you've never taken that step to make Jesus Lord of your life, but you, you feel the call right now. It's, it's the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. You simply respond. You know I'm talking to you because the Holy Spirit is pressing in on your heart. You simply go to him right now. You go over to God and you say, God, I am a sinner. And I know I can't save myself. I know I can't fix this, but Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to have that hope. I want to have that assurance. So would you please come into my life now? Wash away all of my sin. I make the declaration right now that you are my Lord. I will follow after you. I thank you for dying for me. Jesus, we all now together worship you for who you are and what you have done for us.